Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Models predict that COVID-19 infections in Georgia will peak in the next two weeks. With rising cases and limited ventilators and supplies, doctors and clinicians may have to face gut-wrenching decisions about who gets critical care and who doesn't. It's going to be very difficult for anyone participating in this process, patients, families, and healthcare professionals, and it will cause a tremendous amount of moral distress. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, we talk to a pair of experts about guiding distressed caregivers through the ethics and data points of making triage decisions. Plus, isolation can be a relapse trigger for people struggling with substance abuse disorders. We talk with a recovering addict about staying sober while staying at home. We have to make sure we're putting our recovery first um, as we process this other pandemic. And how two beloved art house cinemas in Georgia are adapting and surviving when their screens have gone dark. The show will go on after the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. You may have seen videos or read stories of doctors in Italian hospitals flooded with COVID-19 patients. Their grief and distress over deciding who gets treatment with ventilators and other equipment in short supply is unimaginable. Thankfully, clinicians on the front lines in Georgia have not yet had to face those wrenching decisions. But with models predicting infections to peak in early May, bioethicists are preparing healthcare professionals with guidance on making split-second triage decisions. Joining me by Zoom to talk about how these decisions get made are Kathy Kinlaw, Associate Director of the Emory University Center for Ethics and Director of the Center's Program in Health Sciences and Ethics. Kathy, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Also with us, Brendan Parent. He's Assistant Professor of Bioethics at New York University's Langone Health. Brendan, welcome. Pleasure to be here. And I'm going to ask you first, we are facing a growing shortage of resources relative to how quickly the virus is spreading. There are no federal guidelines for triage decisions. So how are they made? Is it state by state, hospital by hospital? It tends to be institution by institution, whether that's a hospital or a clinic, potentially with some guidance from state organizations. And Kathy, your organization, your consortium rather, is one of those that has given guidance to Georgia, which does not yet have statewide triage guidelines. You've drafted these guidelines for Emory University hospitals, made them available to statewide hospital networks. They are pretty detailed. So what kind of factors should we take into account in guiding these decisions? First of all, I think it's very important that these ethics guidance plans are based on clinical criteria. So there is no exclusion of groups of individuals. We're very concerned about that because we know that that would be discriminatory. So for example, if we had a 50-year-old patient who had um, a past healthy history and we compared that particular person with an individual, 50-year-old individual, same age, but who had a long history of chronic illness, both would be eligible for critical care resources but the one who has a healthier background might rise to a higher priority level than the other patient. And that's the way we would begin this process. Now, Brendan, you have been working in the transplant field for some time. Is this the kind of criteria that are used for making those kind of decisions, or is that just based on whoever is on the list? 
there are some similarities in terms of prioritization, which have to do with who is most likely to benefit from the procedure. And the parallel in the current triage situation is who among these individuals is most likely to be discharged after the use of a ventilator if we don't have enough for everyone. So while there are similar features, it's far more nuanced, I suppose, across different organs and with different patients, the resource situation is a little bit different. COVID-19 triage guidelines for hospitals do vary state by state, and as you said, institution by institution. But in Alabama, people with, quote, severe mental retardation may not be candidates for use of a ventilator. Kathy mentioned that there's no discrimination in these kind of triage decisions. But what does that mean? You know, when federal civil rights officials say they won't allow hospitals to discriminate based on disabilities, what happens when state and federal priorities clash? So technically, federal priorities are supposed to win out. And in this case, such a discriminatory practice that is so explicit clearly violates equal protection rights. But I I think that the notion of discrimination is unavoidable when it comes to these kinds of very difficult triage decisions. Yes, I would say that Those kinds of exclusionary criteria is not the basis for most of the ethics guidance that I've seen. Mm -hmm. And I believe, in fact, in Alabama, there has been changes to the uh, guidelines you refer to so that the process for making these decisions should be based on, as Brendan was saying, the likelihood of an individual to actually be able to survive the hospitalization, and hopefully to recover, not based on characteristics like having a disability. Well, perhaps based on that, some disability rights and other activists have drawn connections between triage and eugenics. What do you make of that comparison? So I think it's an important comparison to be aware of, especially when frameworks allow something like pre-existing intellectual developmental disabilities to creep into the decision-making process. But I do think that it is incredibly difficult, as Kathy mentions, to be able to focus exclusively on medical criteria when such criteria is sometimes a byproduct or indirectly related to pre-existing conditions. So for example, The New York Task Force on Life and the Law produced pandemic ventilator triage guidelines specifically focused on the sequential organ failure assessment score, Mm -hmm. which is the score that actually quantifies the likelihood of survival with optimal medical care based on six organ systems. But if you take two individuals, one of whom who has a worse SOFA score than the other, it's quite possible that that score is the product of living in poverty, living in a food desert. And while this might be unavoidable, and of course our goal, we need to focus on providing effective care that saves the most lives when we have limited resources, it points to these kinds of social inequities that hopefully we can focus more attention on. 
Well, Kathy, let me ask you, these are profound ethical decisions, and they've been increasingly surfacing in our country around end-of-life care and advanced directive planning. But this virus is striking people who will not likely have gone through their own, and embedded in triage decisions are questions about what society values or maybe doesn't value in a life. So how do you, and this consortium of people that you worked with, how do you even begin to approach that? Yeah, this is a powerful um, example of where our thinking ahead, both on a uh, patient by patient level and trying to respect individuals and help them think about what their choices are is both a large factor in decision-making now. And in addition, of course, we're moving from um, routine times in healthcare, if there are such a thing, where we're caring for patients on a regular basis into a time where we're now thinking about public health ethics. So how do we make sure that we're taking care of populations at large for whom we may not have enough resources available to take care of everyone? So we're having to think quite differently about how do we respect, continue to respect individuals, patients' values, but at a time where we may not be able to do everything that the patient prefers. So we're in a really unprecedented or uncharted waters right now. We're talking about medical professionals faced with insufficient resources pushed to the brink and having to decide not how to save a life, but who to save. And we're learning about how those decisions are made with Brendan Parent, Associate Professor of Bioethics at NYU's Langone Center, and Kathy Kinlaw. She's Associate Director of the Emory University Center for Ethics and Director of the Center's Program in Health Sciences and Ethics. As we mentioned at the top, many people have seen these grim reports of doctors in Italy grieving over deciding which patients to put on a ventilator, happening in New York hospitals as well. Here is Dr. Tina Goloborodko working in the Bronx, and she shed some light on the harrowing impact of these decisions for a profile in The New Yorker. Before coronavirus, anybody who needed a vent always got a vent. And now there are conversations, and I see hospitals even coming, already coming up with protocols of who is going to get the vent and who won't. And I honestly, I don't even know how to live with that after that. This is very deeply, I guess, disturbing. I mean, I went into this profession to be saving lives. Brendan, you are in New York, which has seen the highest number of COVID cases and deaths, so many in, in just a month. How much preparation do doctors get to make these kind of calls? I think the amount of preparation is pretty well correlated to how well resourced the institution is where that doctor works. Um, it's vastly disparate between private, prestigious hospitals versus small public hospitals that serve a very different population. Ideally, the guidelines for how to make such decisions are set up early and each person who is going to be expected to provide care during this time gets direct training on how to implement these guidelines. And then in addition to that, there's an ethics committee that can convene for really hard cases to take the decision-making pressure off of the already morally injured clinicians who are in the trenches. Whereas at the public hospital, they might not even have the guidelines set up and they most likely are not getting sufficient training on how to implement them. Yes, it's powerful to know that 
there was work that was done on pandemic influenza about a decade ago, and some creation of CDC guidelines, for example, that helped a lot of clinicians and other people in healthcare systems prepare for what would need to go into effect and how, how we might best do that. And then things kind of went quiet for a while. And so we are not prepared, I think, adequately in most healthcare systems or have not been to this point for physicians and other healthcare providers to um, be a part of this process. I think much good training is beginning to occur or has occurred so that if these difficult decisions need to be made, people will be better equipped, but it is going to be hard. It's going to be very difficult for anyone participating in this process, patients, families, and healthcare professionals. And it will cause a tremendous amount of moral distress for our physicians and nurses and healthcare providers. I'm wondering whether the opposite can happen to that distress. You know, when one is seeing so much death day after day, is there a point where, I hate to say it, you know, someone might become sort of accustomed to it or or have to numb out the impact just to survive? I think there is a lot of pressure on our providers. There's no doubt about it. My sense and watching healthcare colleagues in this area, in the Atlanta area, is that they are incredibly dedicated and very present. Even though they are getting tired, they're getting exhausted, I don't see a move toward being accustomed or to making this a routine time at this point. But it also, your your question is an excellent one because I think we need to be doing everything we can to provide support for our clinicians now, not just as we get further into the wave of this virus or when this virus is over, we certainly will need some debriefing then. But right now we need a lot of support for the mental health and well-being of our providers. And to know that healthcare systems and the community at large are with them. I think that's extremely important. And I think this is gonna hit all the healthcare workers incredibly hard. They're just gonna handle it in different ways. I think it is an extraordinary combination of compassion for humanity, as well as rational thinking that draws people to the healthcare profession. And all of these people have seen death and have dealt with the most traumatic, extreme uh, situations. And while this is a new level, I don't think that people will become inured to the experience of that trauma. And some might just recognize it earlier and try to take care of themselves sooner, whereas others might experience some amount of post-traumatic stress. And as Kathy mentioned, we need to be there to provide the kind of emotional, therapeutic, psychosocial support that they need. For both of you in the bioethics field, you have to tackle these big philosophical questions about how to let's face it, assign value to a life, even when there isn't really a, quote, right answer. What is it like to see your work, your thinking put together and applied on the floor to the current pandemic? I think most bioethicists that I'm in conversation with appreciate the seriousness of this time and are very happy, if you will, to be a part of this process. In other words, this is a time where Bioethicists realize their contributions can be extraordinarily important 
to all of our healthcare colleagues, and more importantly, to our patients and families and communities, and are willing and able to roll up our sleeves and be a part of this process. I think we do understand the gravity of this. We'll be doing a lot of reflection as well about our place in this process. Now it is sort of all decks, uh, all hands rather on deck for us to do this well and to be learning from each other and working collaboratively so that we have the best process in place as possible. I think that's right. And Virginia, your previous question, I think is relevant to this one too, which is if bioethicists are trying to create these policies that in some ways determines who lives and who dies, it's important for us not to become inured to the fact that this actually has an impact on individuals. And so to be able to create the policy so that these decisions can be made Whereas we could imagine if they didn't exist, some number of clinicians just throwing their hands up and saying, I don't want to be responsible for this. I'm going to you know, get out of town or I don't have the capacity to do it. You know, It is this incredibly onerous job. And if we can work together to make this possible, while it should hit us in our hearts, we can feel <laughs> as though our work and uh, what we have been known for, which is thinking, can actually have practical effect in implementing a just system of protecting people. That's an excellent point. I wonder if, you know, you're, you're pulling together so much information, data, human experience, the reality of what, how split-second decisions are made and giving people some guidance, but have you put yourself in the head of the person making that decision at that time or the family member who's concerned about those respective people? I would say um, as a person who works as a clinical ethicist at the bedside and treasures the opportunity to be with patients and families, even in making hard decisions, that um, I very much have the, the faces and the voices of people in my mind in thinking about the processes that we're creating I also have the faces and voices of all of my healthcare colleagues in mind who are going through this incredibly difficult process. And I think that we must so that we don't lose sight of the people affected as we're developing this guidance. And by the way, bioethicists, of course, are developing this in close collaboration with all of our clinical colleagues. And I think there is some grace and some strength in our having the chance to do that with others. So I would I would second everything that Kathy said. I think that's she she put a bow on it. I want to thank you both for your time and for the work you're doing at this incredibly difficult time. Brendan Parent, thank you. Thank you very much. Brennan is Assistant Professor of Bioethics at New York University's Langone Health. And Kathy Kinlaw, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Kathy is Associate Director of the Emory University Center for Ethics and Director of the Center's Program in Health Science and Ethics. Coming up, many people are finding social distancing difficult or lonely, and those difficulties can become dangerous for people recovering from substance abuse disorders. We're going to hear about how support groups are providing help and community, even through the isolation. Stay tuned for that story and more of On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. 
Recovery researchers and specialists urge people trying to recover from alcohol and drug abuse disorders to avoid isolation, which leaves those dependent on 12-step meetings especially vulnerable under shelter-at-home guidelines. The Georgia Council on Substance Abuse estimates that some 800,000 people statewide are in recovery from alcohol and drug addiction. Jeff Breedlove is Chief of Communications and Policy for the Council. Jeff is organizing virtual support meetings and is in recovery from drug addiction himself. We spoke with him earlier this week on Zoom about his concerns for people trying to stay sober. Jeff, thanks for being with us. Virginia, thanks for having us today. Well, specialists in the addiction field look at coronavirus and identify the pandemic as a, quote, relapse trigger. So what are some of your biggest concerns for people who are in addiction? Well, you know, we believe deeply that the opposite of addiction is connection. So when we saw COVID-19 beginning as a peer-led organization, everybody at the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse is in long-term recovery. We knew that this was going to be uh, a serious issue for people in recovery. Because the longer that we're isolated, um, and the more stress and the more anxiety that happens from loss of jobs or family members getting sick or whatever that stress may be, the threat of both new cases of active addiction and relapse from people in recovery, it just grows every day. After Katrina hit New Orleans, they saw a huge spike months afterwards. So that the storm came through and people dealt with that devastation But the secondary medical issues of new addiction and relapse were very devastating in New Orleans. And that's what's going to happen nationwide here. These secondary medical issues of mental health issues and substance use disorder issues are going to be a reality. And they're already beginning. Um, I had a a brother in recovery from where I went and got treatment at Mar in Doraville, Georgia. Uh, He overdosed last week. And some of the folks that knew him knew that it was partially related to some of the stress he was going through because of COVID-19. So it's not theoretical. We know it's happening. We know it's going to get worse. We have been imploring Governor Brian Kemp. He's done a great job with his COVID task force. And he's got subcommittees. Uh, one of those is chaired by Mayor Bottoms uh, on homelessness. We have publicly called with our mental health allies throughout Georgia for a subcommittee on mental health and substance use disorder so that the state can organize the county and city governments uh, with the peer voice involved to get ready for what we know is coming uh, across our state. Well, you have been vocal about being someone in recovery from drug addiction to crack cocaine. Now you're leading virtual meetings. Who are you seeing at these meetings? And of course, we know they're anonymous. Sure. Well, they are. And for, for many people, they are. And I want to say, you know, I'm uh, I'm not leading them. The team at Georgia Council on Substance Abuse is leading them. We have our peers uh, rotate through hosting and co-hosting these meetings. It was the vision of our executive director, Neil Campbell. We've, we've had about 30 of these so far. We host them on Tuesday, Wednesdays, Thursdays, twice a day, Friday nights, and on weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays, twice a day. They last about an hour. Sometimes we'll have 50, 60 people. Sometimes we'll have 14, 15 people. But as Neil Campbell always says, the people that are supposed to be in the meeting are going to be in the meeting. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had people from every part of Georgia. We've had people from other states, as far as away as California, Illinois, New York, uh, and right next door in South Carolina, Florida, Tennessee. So the word has gone nationwide that Georgia is leading the way on these all-recovery meetings 
and people come on, they, they make shares, uh, we listen to each other, and they are saving lives. And we know they're saving lives uh, because people have given that testimony in these meetings. You said all recovery meetings, meaning, therefore, anybody who's recovering from any kind of addiction? Anybody recovering from any kind of addiction, substance use disorder, alcohol, narcotics, it could be gambling, it could be an eating disorder, it could be sexual issues, it could be, you could be an ally who lost a family or friend uh, to this disease or to another disease and just need somebody to talk to during this time. They're open to just anybody that needs fellowship. They're just inclusive, welcoming, and free. Well, I am talking to you in your professional capacity, but but on a personal level, what do these meetings, what does this fellowship, I guess, provide for addicts, alcoholics, and people who are struggling with, as you said, any kind of substance abuse disorder? Well, I love that you asked me that because Mar in DeKalb County, where I had the privilege of getting my treatment, they're hosting meetings. So when I attend those, I attend them as a person in recovery. Um, I don't attend them as, as an employee. I'm not hosting them. And so it's been fantastic for me as a person in long-term recovery to have my virtual meetings with my group. Um, I'm not worrying about running a board. I'm not worrying about, you know, unmuting somebody. I'm just there to do my shares. And so I can, I can testify from both sides of the screen, if you will. Um, and as a person who needs this for my own recovery, these, these save my life. They give me peace. They give me an outlet to talk to people who or where I am. Uh, for somebody with my disease, it's good to be able to talk to people who can relate to you and the things that you're going through. So I see it both sides of the screen, and I know it works. I've been reading up on this a bit. The journalist Virginia Heffernan wrote about attending online meetings in the New York Times. And I was wondering about this, the whole question of anonymity. You are supposed to, I mean, that's part of the thing that you can be the Wall Street banker or the guy who cleans up his office at the same meeting at the same time, all equal. Is it, How about the concept of anonymity when you're online? And especially with this idea that people could Zoom raid or Zoom bomb meetings. How are people handling that? Well, I got to tell you, that's a great question. We were Zoom bombed one time. Uh-huh. What happened? It was ugly. Well, some hacker, uh, our IT people believe it was a hacker, one person, and they were coming in and they, they did inappropriate images and words. I got to give credit to Zoom. They've set up protocols and our IT people have taught us the protocols and we've had zero problems since that one incident. But here's what was fascinating. The resolve the determination by both the participants and our staff to keep going. Um, it only made everybody on that meeting stronger and no one dropped off. They keep coming back. So recovery is stronger than COVID-19. Recovery is stronger than some hacker trying to break our community up. Uh, that kind of stuff, it's an irritation. It's unfortunate, but it's not going to stop the recovery movement across Georgia or across America. Not whatsoever. Back to the anonymity part though, you know, that was interesting to us. We asked ourselves, will people get on uh, a virtual meeting? And the answer is yes, and it's easy because when they log in, they can put just their first name if they want to. They don't have to show their image on Zoom. They can block that. And we have many people that do that. So there'll be a first name on the screen with no picture. Then we have some people that like the face-to-face -face contact. That helps them see other people. So it kind of is a great way to serve everybody. 
My guest is Jeff Breedlove. He's Chief of Communications and Policy for the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. He has been both helping to organize and also take part in recovery meetings during the COVID-19 virus scare that has put so many people behind closed doors. And isolation is, for many people, at the root of addiction. I know it's an anonymous program uh, and these meetings are anonymous, but can you share without identifying a person, any personal stories of, of those you've heard who are struggling as they're at home? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been people that have gotten on, they've, they've lost jobs and they just wanted to process that with people. They have a family member or loved one who has COVID-19, the coronavirus, and they just want to talk about it. They, uh, are having stress by being in the home with an elderly parent or a young child. Um, this is the real world, and it's a microcosm of what's happening, I suspect, in every family across America. The only difference between those of us um, in recovery and, and those that don't have the privilege to be in recovery is that you know we have to make sure we're putting our recovery first um, as we process this other pandemic. So you know, before COVID-19, more people were dying from issues around substance use disorder than anything else in the United States. Well, we may be number two now, but we're still number two. And that's not going away. And as COVID-19, uh, we flatten that curve, as we talk about. And as cases drop in New York, and we hope everywhere else, you know, the secondary health issue of people entering addiction for the first time are relapsing from recovery. Uh, we know historically that has happened with hurricanes like Katrina. We know that that's, it's not a theory, it's going to happen. And having meetings like this so that people can go and express their feelings about these, these situations in their life, that, uh, that keeps people in sobriety and that saves lives. And I would suggest to, to the listeners that there's no other community it's more vulnerable to the impact from coronavirus than people in recovery uh, because it kills more people than anything else other than COVID-19 right now. And so we must have our stakeholders in government, in the business community, in the faith community, working diligently to continue to not only support existing uh, programs, but expand programs. When Congress is going to be debating phase four and phase five, it is imperative that there be bipartisan support in the Georgia delegation for programs that support addiction and recovery. This is not a partisan issue. It is a life-saving issue, and there must be support from Congress to the Georgia Gold Dome to uh, every county and city across Georgia uh, to support this vulnerable community, the recovery community. As you know, a number of treatment centers, clinics, recovery centers have closed. And many of these were created in the throes of the opioid crisis. Are you worried about losing ground in treatment during during the coronavirus pandemic? Well, of course we're worried about it. We, we, we're extremely worried about it. And that is why the Georgia Council on Substance Abuses, under the leadership of Neil Campbell, is leading the way to advocate for the recovery community. We cannot take a step back. We just can't because people die when we do. So we have to have all of our stakeholders. And again, it's not just elected officials. It's our business community. It's our faith community. It's our education community. 
we've got to remember the secondary medical issues that are occurring on the front end today and are only going to get worse as we flatten the curve on coronavirus. Those, those next phases of medical issues are going to manifest themselves in an ugly and deadly way. And I just have to tell you this, treatment centers closing is just the tip of the iceberg. What, Jeff, is your advice to the addict or the alcoholic or someone struggling with substance abuse disorder now really feeling it? I need to tell you this. The state of Georgia has a great resource. It's called the Cares Warm Line. It's free. It's confidential. It's open seven days a week um, from 830 in the morning to 11 at night. I'm sure GPB can share the number on their platforms. It's 844 326 5,400, um, it is a essential way to talk to somebody, to stay connected any time of the day and night. And so the first thing is use the CARES Warm Line. It, it's, it's a great resource. The second is follow our social media at the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. Get on one of these virtual all recovery meetings. And most importantly, you know people already in your personal life. On, on my cell phone, I've got about a dozen brothers in recovery from Mars. And we're texting each other more, funny, funny little jokes, funny little memes, funny little images, or even calling each other. Call your sponsor. My sponsor and I are in touch every single day. Sometimes it's by text, sometimes it's by phone. So don't forget to do those core things that you're already doing and don't make COVID-19 and the coronavirus an excuse not to. So you've got a phone, almost everybody has a cell phone these days. Um, use that phone to save your life. Jeff, I want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Virginia. This is a real privilege. Thank you and GPB for helping uh, get the word out to help save lives in the recovery community. Jeff Breedlove, Chief of Communications and Policy for the Georgia Council on Substance Abuse. We do have a link posted for the CARES Warm Line number for 24-7 support, as well as other resources at gpbnews.org. We're going to take a quick break, but stay tuned for more on Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Until she was in her 30s, Vivian Howard was ashamed of where she came from. Deep run North Carolina was pretty country, and country was not considered cool. And the food she grew up eating felt embarrassing. Thankfully, a number of influential cooks, critics, and restaurants ushered in a revival of Southern food, and she is among them. As a chef, a restaurateur, writer, and Peabody Award-winning television host, her new series, Somewhere South, began on March 27th on PBS. Each of the six episodes explores a single dish and how those foods reflect the history, evolution, and people of the region. I've always looked at food to help explain the world around me. So I started to seek out the dishes that connect us all. What are we making today? Sogbanir. Have you ever had a Sri Lankan meatball? What do you think? What I found in the South is that food tells us where we came from, where we landed, and what we did when we got there. Vivian Howard is joining me via Skype from Kinston, North Carolina, to discuss the series that has taken her all over the South, just when we need stories of what connects us. Vivian Howard, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You say in the, an episode that the American South is my classroom. The dishes we share will be my roadmap. And you visit 
a number of large and small communities across the South. How did you put this journey together and, and how choose those dishes? Um, well, you know, I had this conversation several years ago with my editor and I was talking about trying to write a book about the fact that there's only like 20 dishes in the whole world. We all eat some version of a porridge or we have some sort of barbecue, no matter where we come from and what our community looks like. And so we started with those dishes and um, really let them be our guide. And we sought out communities in and around the South that their stories not often told, but that there's really a rich history and present there in their communities. and, And the food reflects the foods all of us eat. I want to go back to that quote that we opened with about feeling embarrassed by country food and country living when you were younger. We pulled that quote from the second episode. So what is it that changed for you? Well, I think that I read this book by Edna Lewis, The Taste of Country Cooking, and it was so beautifully written and so much of what she talked about and the way that her family ate with the seasons and the dishes that they prepared. Um, it really, I, I saw my food in that and it, it gave it value. And so I, I had always thought that Southern food had to be from a city like Charleston or Savannah or New Orleans. And what I realized is that really, you know, I grew up eating the food of the frugal farmer and that really represents a huge swath of the way people ate in the South for so long. And so I just, I guess I I started to see it for the valuable cuisine uh, rooted in tons of history and, and storytelling and resourcefulness. I started to see it for what it was. So over the course of the series, you encounter others who share that they have also had to learn to be proud of their community's contribution to Southern cooking and to Southern culture. What is that for you? Is that part of coming into your own as a Southern chef? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that as a cook, the food that you cook is is best when it's attached to a story or it has some sort of meaning for you. And so when I was able to, you know, embrace the food that I grew up eating, my food became so much better. And so I think that that is a part of every chef's coming into their own is like finding their voice and connecting it to their their place and their past and their story. And we that's something that we've seen a lot shooting somewhere south is, you know, a lot of the people that we learn from are first or second generation immigrants. And we found that, you know, the first generation, they maybe don't celebrate the foods of the place where they came from. Maybe they're a little bit um, ashamed of them and they desperately want to embrace the hamburgers and hot dogs and french fries of the United States but then that changes and you know the second generation celebrates those foods and really makes a point of making sure that their children know where their people came from and so I think that happens for a lot of people at different times and for different reasons. But you make a point in the series to highlight the role that Native Americans, enslaved Africans, Black Americans played in defining the menu of the South. Here's a clip from the fifth episode of the show when you visit Lumbee Indians in Southern North Carolina with Melinda Lowry. So many of the things that we think of as Southern food originated with Native people whether it's corn, sweet potatoes, squash. So really, like, when I think of Southern food, I think of Lumbee food. Did learning this kind of information change how you think about your own family's traditional foods or menus or influence your cooking? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that was so fascinating about that episode was, you know, Melinda introduced the idea to me that our instincts of Southern hospitality really came from Native Americans and their willingness to share with colonists and and show them how to farm here um, or introduce them to ingredients like the squash and the corn and the sweet potatoes. And so the idea that the very premise of Southern hospitality comes from Native Americans is something I had never thought of. And also, you know, the ownership of Southern food and this pull between black and white, you know, that we have always been told such a small, narrow story about slavery. And in the second episode, I learned from Chef B.J. Dennis that really so many people were enslaved and selected from West Africa, not for their ability to work in the fields, but for their knowledge and their skill around cultivating and growing and harvesting rice. And it was that skill and that knowledge that really um, laid the foundation for the rice economy of Charleston. And, and so those were things that were just like, you know, huge eye openers for me. And I, I hope that people watch and, and learn in the way that I did. Vivian Howard is my guest. She's a chef, restaurant owner, and host of the PBS show Somewhere South. The first season is now airing on PBS. I want to go back to this idea of the cultures that influence the South. And the show really speaks to the ways that new migrants to the South, whether from other parts of the country or from other countries, have adapted their traditional foods to suit the place where they live now. So what role does that tradition, and on the other hand, innovation, play in defining Southern food and cooking? Well, that's really the whole point of the series. We wanted to to learn and demonstrate how the food traditions we bring from wherever we come, how they are shaped by the place where we land, and then how that place and that community is in turn shaped by those food traditions. And we, we spent quite a bit of time in Clarkston, Georgia, with Burmese refugees and refugees from Burundi, and to see the way that that community has been shaped by people from all over the world settling there, um, making it you know one of the most diverse square miles in the nation, to see how that has shaped that pocket of Georgia is really a very blown up idea of the things that are happening in smaller pockets all around the South. And, you know, so many of the things that we appreciate as Southern food, collards, okra, uh, they, they all came from other places. They were part of, of traditions that people brought with them. And then they become touchstones of, of the culture here. And this was just all about trying to trace that in, in a modern way. Well, it's interesting because so far in this conversation, we have not talked about what's going on with the coronavirus pandemic, but I think people have become distinctly aware of the concept of a supply chain, you know, how food gets to us. That's something that you deal with day to day as the owner of three restaurants. How is this affecting the broader farming community where you are in North Carolina that you source from? It's terrible for them. Um, you know, both big farmers and small farmers are really suffering under this. You know, the farmers that I work with in my restaurants, they sell most of what they grow to restaurants. And so that hurts them, you know, 
very quickly. And this is unprecedented. And, you know, farmers are in a position where they need cash flow as well. And they need cash flow so they can invest in planting um, and feeding their animals so that when we come out on the other side of this, there's something for us to eat. Well, Vivian Howard, thank you for making time for us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is Vivian Howard, chef, writer, and host of the new PBS series, Somewhere South. You can catch the show on GPB TV Friday nights at 11. And we will leave you with cornbread and butter beans by the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Cornbread and butter beans and you cross the table and beans and beans. Among the small businesses shuttered by shelter-in-place orders are two of Georgia's historic art house theaters. We um, closed the business and uh, basically I went into sort of triage mode, I guess you would call it. It wasn't a, an easy thing to do, but obviously... Um, you know, the, the best, the safest, and the most advisable. That's Pamela Cohn, executive director of Cine in Athens. We asked her and Christopher Escobar, who owns the venerable 80-year-old Plaza Theater in Atlanta, how they're adapting now that their screens have gone dark. Both venues have been slashing expenses where they can and applying for payroll protections and economic disaster loans under the CARES Act. But neither knows how much they're going to get or when. It's still unclear, even if we do get approved, uh, you know, what that turnaround time will be for those funds. You know, we've already incurred a substantial loss getting to this point, and we're going to keep having a loss going forward. And so while it, it has the potential to help, it definitely has no ability to fully cover the impact. In the meantime, both historic theaters have come up with innovative ways to bring in some passive income while the seats are empty, including streaming. And thankfully, some distributors are helping to provide content during the crisis. Um, we had wanted to book a film called Bacurau, a Brazilian film, um, prior to closing. I saw that Kino Lober had created a Kino Now marquee, and um, Bacurau was their first offering. So we booked that film, and that was our first film that we offered on our virtual, you know, cinema marquee. The plaza is also selling limited concessions and to-go bar orders, along with access to its virtual movie club for folks who contribute via the plaza's GoFundMe page. And so we invite them to join these online live stream, we're calling them Corin Streaming, uh, <laughs> events where they can join the special uh, screens of Rocky Horror Quarantine Show. One of the other things we're going to do, which we're very excited about, is we're going to be doing a special online screening for the Plaza Movie Club of The Room, which is regarded as the best worst movie ever made and going to have Greg Sestero joining us live. And so people are going to be able to do their audience participation as a group from the safety and confines of their own home, uh, but be able to still experience it together. And they are still doing what cinemas do best, screening new movies. 
we are now showing uh, films that would have been released during this time frame. So currently we're showing a film called St. Francis. Um, we have Sorry, We Missed You. We are trying to bring a free film um, for viewing for the community. I think that brings a sense of continuity and a sense of something's at least somewhat normal in terms of um, you know, seeing films that you wouldn't otherwise be able to see. And we're absolutely thrilled to be able to do this as part of our service to the community. So for now, support from staff and hopefully the community at large will sustain these beloved independent cinemas until they open again. It is gonna be a tough road ahead. I mean, we've got a number of things that we're working on. You know, there will, there will be a day where we reopen and uh, we'll be sort of bigger and better and I think closer and, and really not take for granted the uniqueness and the special quality that is there with being able to get together with folks from your community and watch a movie together. Christopher Escobar there, owner of the Plaza Theatre in Atlanta. We also heard from Pamela Cohn, executive director of Cine in Athens. You'll find details and links to help out at gpbnews.org. We heard music from the soundtracks of the films Bakurao, The Room, The Rocky Horror Picture Show, and the one you're listening to now. It's called Moonrise from the 2020 film St. Francis. I am hosting a new virtual author talk series with the Atlanta History Center. On Tuesday, April 21st at 7, I'll be speaking with Julia Alvarez. We're going to talk about Afterlife. It's her new novel. On Saturday, April 25th, Sue Monk Kidd, you may know her as the author of The Secret Life of Bees, she's going to be joining me at 2 to talk about her new novel, The Book of Longings. There's a full schedule and Zoom links at atlantahistorycenter.com or gpb.org community. On Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Chase McGee. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott, broadcasting from my living room to yours. Thanks so much for your time and attention. This is On Second Thought.